This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Last year, Sky TV kicked off a special news service screening more than 50 domestic sports, including secondary school competitions around the country, which you wouldn't find elsewhere on TV. But critics are now claiming it commodifies kids' sport and they're urging the government to get involved. And one high-profile sportscaster is even promising to disrupt the broadcasts. Be warned, Sky Sport, you've got a, a psycho bunch of parents on your hands here. We've got banners. We are going to go. OK? And, and what are you going to do to stop us? Call the police? You can't do that. But First 15 Rugby's been on Sky TV for years, so what's the problem? Also, we look at how the broadcasting watchdog says that comments about COVID-19 death rates overseas by News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking were misleading. The alarm you're seeing offshore in places like Italy is false coverage to the extent that many of the people would have died anyway. They were dying anyway. But this wasn't the only time that particular broadcaster had misread COVID-19 stats and misled his listeners. And as a low-energy election campaign unfolds, pundits seem to be pining for Crusher Collins and seem disappointed by the gentle Judith that showed up so far. Is Crusher gone? But before all that, how the government got blamed this week for dropping the ball on the All Blacks. Dunedin. Dunedin, there you are. Standing by a landmark just for you. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Yeah, and you're in the octagon there, aren't you? I am, I am. And it is it is brisk. Yeah, I can but see. But I'm here for you. Thanks so much. The subtle is just cutting through. Oh, yeah. So it makes you feel alive. Let's talk about... Uh, did you have a conversation with Scott Morrison overnight? That was Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and TVNZ breakfast host John Campbell after seven last Tuesday morning. In one of the regular round of news media interviews the Prime Minister does every Tuesday. And last Tuesday, all of her interviewers seemed to know that she'd also had a chat to her Aussie counterpart the night before. I have exclusive new details of the developing drama around the two Bledisloe rugby tests set down to be played in New Zealand. The Aussies want outs. They don't want to come to New Zealand. You probably know that already, but it's now so serious that Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern hit the phones last night to talk directly with Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison. And Duncan Garner's supposed scoop on that was not as exclusive as he would have you believe. On News Talk ZB, Mike Hosking had had the same heads up. And uh, the Prime Minister is on. Now, guess what I know? They're going to announce today that they are changing Mm. the quarantine Mm. criteria for the Wallabies. You're joking. No. And as we heard, John Campbell at TVNZ also had that tip-off about Jacinda Ardern's captain's phone call to Scott Morrison. Now, her chat last Tuesday morning with John Campbell on TVNZ Breakfast, though, was a bit of a subpar session as it turned out, but not because of that cold wind that was whistling through the octagon. Jacinda Ardern's earpiece was cutting out the questions, and then this. And regardless of the timing that we're in at the moment, that is still the criteria we're applying. So if you're basing your decisions, oh my giddy aunt. You know, next, Robbie Burns will get up and start wandering around (laughs) and shouting. (laughs) And in the same spot soon after for the AM show on three, it wasn't just the bells, but also the birds. Um, You just said that. Did I just hear this correctly? I mean, can you get rid of them? Can you get rid of them? Is there some way to get rid of the seagulls? It's a real problem. There's no problem with the wildlife, is there? Just... I hope they don't go poo-poos. Anyway, Prime Minister, you You're just said... You're lucky that you didn't get the bells. I've... Oh! Yeah. <laughs> oh. Uh, could you walk on water just to the left there as well, please? Um, Prime Minister, I, I was going to say to you, this might be... Now there, the Prime Minister was trying to answer Duncan Garner's question about the upcoming cannabis referendum, but the first thing her questioners all wanted to know about last Tuesday was whether the Wallabies would be coming round to play at our place.
Have you been on the phone to Scott Morrison last night? Oh, I did have a quick catch up with him last night, which I should I should put out. Not unusual for us. We do we do talk quite often. Did you talk about the Bledisloe Cup? Yeah, I I just wanted to make sure that he was aware. I was just made aware last night that there were a few little rumblings um, around the arrangements that we had in place. Now, rumblings about the rugby was putting it mildly. In July, Sanzar said it had hoped to host the four-team rugby championship tournament here, but the Friday before last, they said it will be in Australia instead. Critics claimed it was our stricter quarantine controls that our government insisted on here that made New Zealand's pitch an offer that Sanzar could only refuse because Australia was offering a much looser arrangement. But Jacinda Ardern said the conditions were reasonable and she blamed Sanzar politics for the big tournament going across the ditch. Last Monday on News Talk ZB, Mike Hosking accused her of sliding out alternative facts under the clever cloak of it being a Friday and he wasn't going to fall for it. Traditionally, the bad news days for governments on the understanding that people forget stuff over the weekend. Well, for me, no such luck. The damage, as it turns out, is twofold. And the second bit is directly attributable to the Prime Minister, who basically made stuff up. Or you can pick another word if you like. And in case you hadn't got the message... At least be honest about it and own it. Don't blame others who aren't to blame. That's just straight up and down dishonesty. When speaking to the PM herself on Tuesday, Mike Hosking said straight up, did you make it up? This is my theories around it. My view is still that we put up a good pitch. So they are theories. There's nothing tangible. I just haven't heard anything oh, tangible about Sanzar politics outside I just, of broadcasting I just, I just and possibly you. some money. Yeah, of course. Of course, Mike, there is constantly politics in some of these sporting organisations. Big debates going on about New Zealand's pitches around super rugby and so on. But regardless... Well, after that, Mike Hosking thanked the PM for her time and after a belt of wet-and-forget ads, he hammered her handling of it when she couldn't respond like this. Have you ever heard anything so pathetic in your life? We could have lost the whole tournament. Of course, then again, we might not have. And so everything is predicated on why we shouldn't do something as opposed to why we should. Now, Mike Hosking's main point was, one, he's made a lot on the air lately. What's the point of a good health response to COVID-19 if you can't use it to respond to opportunities like the rugby championship? And that's a fair question, though he wasn't addressing the fact that doing so could, of course, compromise that good health response. When New Zealand Rugby's chairman Brent Impey appeared on ZB two days earlier, he insisted that quarantine laws were the decisive factor in Sanzar picking Australia as hosts and not us. But his answer to this question from Martin Devlin was interesting. Given what the state of the Argentinian team is with six COVID cases, their coach, and also South Africa, as you explained, trying to get up to speed to play, do you still fear that it will, will it go ahead even in Australia? Well, at this stage, the answer to that question is yes. Now, the problem for the South African squad was not so much that they might not be fit for the games, but that they could carry COVID. Hundreds of thousands of South Africans have had it so far, and six of Argentina's rugby squad. Meanwhile, on Tuesday's AM show, the host Duncan Garner was pointing the finger of blame for the rugby championship going across the ditch at a Prime Minister, but not ours. What dirty, bloody, cunning rats those Aussies are. So much for this shared Anzac spirit and shared values in these tough times. First the underarm, now the underhand. New Zealand is family. Oh, thanks, Julia. Julia Gillard, you're right. Now, Julia Gillard is an odd target for that. She stopped being Prime Minister in Australia more than seven years ago. When Jacinda Ardern this week revealed what she called a bespoke arrangement to curtail quarantine for the Wallabies so that this year's Bledisloe test could go ahead here, 
Critics said this was political chicanery. With one of those tests due on election night, the prospect of seeing it on screen from Australia, along with the rest of the rugby championship, could have been a real vote loser if the government was blamed for that, so the theory went. But in the end, that wasn't an issue as the game will be on Sunday, a full day after the whistle goes on the 2020 election. Sport and politics shouldn't mix, the old loaded slogan says, but when political points are at stake at election time, it certainly does. We sold our soul for a few dollars. That was the bleak headline on an article in the Herald last month by sports editor Dylan Cleaver, which lifted the lid on a messy dispute between some schools, the government body Sport New Zealand, Sky TV and former Olympic gold medalist and current New Zealand Olympic Committee chef the mission, Rob Waddell. The Herald's headline was based on a quote from Auckland Grammar School headmaster Tim O'Connor, who was talking about a deal done with Sky TV last year to broadcast high school sports events to which Rob Waddell's company, New Zealand Sports Collective, has exclusive sponsorship and marketing rights. Now that deal followed Sky Television backing the New Zealand Sports Collective project last year at a reported cost of $10 million over three years. More than 50 national sports organisations, including Umbrella Body School Sport New Zealand, signed up to that deal. And the platform for all this, Sky Sport Next, was launched last year and described like this in promotional trailers by Sky's CEO Martin Stewart and Rob Waddell. Welcome to Sky Sport Next, our new initiative supporting grassroots sport and rising talent across New Zealand. We're proud to be investing in Sky Sport Next to give over 50 sports a chance to be seen and to grow. Through Sky Sport Next, these athletes and their sports have the chance to tell their story. And there's quite a lot on Sky Sports Next. There's hockey, athletics, gymnastics and even sports like speed wall climbing and highlights from last year's secondary school orienteering champs. Uh, we're sorry about the mud and the rain, but as many of you who've been to Woodhall before will know, it is quite typical of winter in Woodhall. Go! And the girls are off. The trailers promoted this as a one-stop shop where players, volunteers and fans can all see this stuff and that it's all good for school sport. We are thrilled to be working with Rob Waddell and the New Zealand Sport Collective to deliver this groundbreaking broadcast partnership. Sky's putting sport in the hands of Kiwis. It's an incredible step towards the growth and sustainability of New Zealand sport. Sky Sport Next have provided enormous opportunities for people to get off their butts and get back out onto the field. This is what Sky is about, being the home of sport for all New Zealanders with the best local, national and international sports. But even back then, not everybody was thrilled by this partnership or the platform. In late February, the Herald's Dylan Cleaver reported that some school principals felt blindsided by the deal and some schools didn't even think it was a good idea that their kids should end up on TV, whether they wanted to or not. For his part, Rob Waddell told the Herald he did have the support of a number of principals and that consultation with schools had been detailed and none of the schools would be compelled to compete on camera and wouldn't be excluded from events if they didn't. Sport New Zealand's chief executive, Peter Miskimmon, said at the time it had concerns. Professionalisation of high school sport, child protection, match-fixing and gender equity. But he said these had all been, or will be, addressed. In his piece for The Herald, Dylan Cleaver said that Sport New Zealand's Peter Miskimmon had endorsed the plan despite serious concerns among his own staff, which were revealed in correspondence released under the Official Information Act, and emails which revealed that Sport New Zealand staffers feared getting on the wrong side of Olympic champion Rob Waddell. 
but both Rob Waddell and Sky's Martin Stewart would only respond to written questions to the Herald submitted by email. Now that wound up News Talk ZB sportscaster Martin Devlin, who wanted to confront Rob Waddell on his show. Put your PR schmuck company to one side, come on and actually answer some questions like a man. That's my challenge to you. Read the emails in Dylan's article, ladies and gentlemen, where the highfalutin executives at Sport New Zealand are too terrified to question Rob Waddell because of his contacts and his position. Every time I say Rob Waddell, because this is what it's about for him, Rob Waddell is not involved in this for any other purpose than making money. Now, that was just part of an extended and increasingly emotional on-air editorial in which the cash register sound effect got a pretty thorough workout. And in that, Martin Devlin had gone on to say this. Be warned, Sky Sport, you've got a, a psycho bunch of parents on your hands here. We've got banners. We are going to go, OK? And, and what are you going to do to stop us? Call the police? You can't do that. I have every right to protest against this, and I will. Now, it's not often that a big-name sportscaster threatens to disrupt the broadcasting of actual sport. Martin Devlin even went on to say that this was something the government needs to sort out, and he was echoed by Stuff Sports reporter Jackson Thomas last month on RNZ Sport Podcast Extra Time. I would suggest Grant Robertson even needs to make a statement on this. Someone needs to come out and really front-foot this and explain exactly how this deal, why this deal was cut, and this has started because it does not serve the best interests of the kids. Now, in that podcast, the brains behind Sky Next and New Zealand Sports Collective, Rob Waddell, did speak about the criticism of the venture because he said there'd been so much misinformation in the media, it was time to clear it up. Now, he said his outfit does get a management fee, but sports will get money from the broadcasting and that the whole thing has a charter to ensure that coverage will be positive and not put any kids under pressure from professionalisation. Please have a look at this charter document. It outlines all of the, the possible concerns you might have in regards to the well-being of your, cho- your children and your students. You know, everything from wagering, um, you know, what happens in the event of an accident, um, consents have been filmed, age of broadcast, uh, how an athlete might be interviewed. Earlier this month, Nine to Noon's Catherine Ryan lined up the CEO of Crown Entity Sport New Zealand, the CEO of Basketball New Zealand, one of the codes that has joined this broadcast plan, and the CEO of the New Zealand Cricket Players Association, Heath Mills, a former teacher who's dead against it. They make a mistake or they do something silly on the field. Prior to these events being broadcast, that might have been in front of a few hundred people and they might have got some ribbing and some stick from that in the past. They can deal with that. Now when that happens, the whole world sees. And through social media, we have adults and many, many other people piling in and criticising and critiquing and abusing our kids. And after that, RNZ's podcast The Detail, a co-production with Newsroom, picked up the story by going back to the journalist who first raised these concerns, Dylan Cleaver from The Herald. I'm going to use an emotive word here, but I don't actually think it's inept, and I think that will be catastrophic for the future of New Zealand sport. However, for years now, secondary school rugby has been broadcast by Sky Sports without commodification causing a catastrophe for the sport at grassroots level, so far as we know. So I asked RNZ sports reporter Joe Porter to decode the stoush over the streaming of school sport. If this platform, Sky Sport Next, launched in November, why mm. is it only now, I mean, more than half a year later, almost a full year later, that there seems to have been this burst of media coverage and concern uh, about the effect it may or may not be having um, and you know, where the money's going and so on? Why, why now, if it launched without 
too much controversy yeah. um, months and months ago. I guess perhaps it was because there was a lack of transparency at the start that people weren't fully aware of what was involved, what had happened to get this deal across the line, who'd signed up to it, who had essentially sold the rights away, were they legally able to? A whole bunch of questions began to be raised because people weren't sure how this agreement had been had been reached between Secondary School New Zealand Council, the Secondary School Sport New Zealand, and Rob Woodell Sports Collective. Uh, essentially, a can of worms was opened when people started to ask questions about what it meant for the for the teenagers involved, what benefit were the schools and athletes getting, or, and what benefit was the sports collective and Sky getting. And 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 any sort of only a debate, they've only responded and written responses to any questions. So there's a there's a concern that perhaps when because Rob Woodell is still chef to mission at New Zealand Olympic Committee, right, well, which, which means he's effectively the guy who has oversight of all yeah. those elite athletes who are amateurs That's going, right. going to... Yeah, and going while to there's no legal problem with him separating his business interests and coming up with the sports collective on the side to his position as chef de mission, it does raise some potential ethical conflicts of interest. Well, when it launched back in November last year, Sky's CEO, Martin Stewart, described Sky Sport Next as a way of giving back to the community, mm. to grassroots sport, um, the figure of $10 million yep. over three years is in mm-hmm. the material they themselves put out. I mean, on the face of it, it would seem to a lot of people like a good thing that, yep. I mean, sports, we're talking basketball, we're talking things like wall climbing, orienteering, yes. you know, they never get on television. And that here is a platform where, you know, the, the high school orienteering champs in Woodville, um, Correct. you know, are, are on screen. So someone's relatives yes. uh, in, you know, Matara or whatever can log on and see it for nothing. And if 10 million bucks is going, well, some of it is going into minority sport, th- this all seems like a good thing. Yeah, uh, you know, national sports organisations get around sixty thousand dollars each. It would seem out of this ten million, they host tournaments to get very little coverage. They struggle to get schools and stuff there. So you'd you'd assume that this would help with all that, encouraging schools to participate in these tournaments. Yeah, like you say, exposure for sports and for and for players and for schools as well that don't necessarily get that sort of traditional exposure. So you would think that on, on that sense, in that sense, it is a good thing. They have a charter which is supposedly looking after all, all these schools and making sure that there's not overexposure to one school. At that level, it seems like everything is good. You would, the question that is being asked, though, who is really getting the majority of the benefit out of this? They're getting 60K a year this in the NSOs. There's no obvious direct link to, to what the secondary schools are getting out of it monetarily, no direct link monetarily for the students or any benefits along those lines. So there are questions as to whether that sort of token gesture is more of an opportunity for Sky to pick up exclusive rights for all high school sport in New Zealand and essentially land grab and land bank those rights for a relatively small price. Is this likely to be a money spinner? I mean, there can't be that much no. money in the orienteering champs from Woodville. No, I mean, absolutely not. You're right. And Many, many, many of these tournaments and many of the things that they broadcast won't actually spend any money for Sky. They'll lose money, no doubt, of course, off it. Some of these, some of these uh, tournaments, some of these schools, some of these sports are going to produce future worldwide stars. And you wonder whether or not Sky getting in there early and cashing in. I mean, it's pretty exclusive, the rights they get. I've seen uh, one of the contracts, which it, it is essentially giving Sky ultimate control and the sports collective over everything in terms of what gets broadcast, the marketing, the merchandising, all that sort of stuff lies with the Sports Collective. Rob Woodell did appear on your Extra Time podcast. Yes. Uh, he answered your questions, and he said, you referred to it earlier, a charter governing the filming and broadcast of events so um, kids under 15 won't be on television, yep. I think. Um, coverage doesn't zero in on just winners and final mm-hmm. stages. And he also said something like a commentary will be positive. Will all that... Calm the critics? 
it'll go some way to calming uh, the concerns around the player welfare or the welfare of these teenage athletes. Because, mm. of course, if you're broadcasting these these games, some of them of which are high pressure and have there's a lot on the line for these teams. If a player does make a glaring error on the field, it opens themselves to social media bullying, vilification, putting some control around the way that that is that is broadcast and 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 is put out there. I guess does potentially help that aspect rather than just Joe Bloggs live streaming it from the sideline and any old man and his dog can comment and who knows what that commentary will involve. I think there's still questions around why Sports Collective are doing it. Is it totally utilitarian or altruistic or are they in it to make money for themselves? Well, one thing that Rob Waddell told you on uh, your interview with him on Extra Time was that School Sport New Zealand is, in his words, at the head of the table Mm. on this. So if some of these downsides that the critics have talked about, if they do start cropping up, could they be a a kind of break on the New Zealand Sports Collective and Sky's operation? I'm not sure. I know that schools have an opt-out clause. So each individual school, if they're not comfortable with being involved in the Sports Collective, can pull out. It's a tricky one in itself, though, because if you've got players that want that exposure, that want to be seen in these tournaments, and parents that want to push their children to be seen and to succeed, then it's going to be quite hard for a school to pull out because they might lose half of their players that will go to another school that is willing to put them on telly. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an out clause, but it comes with a caveat. Who's actually going to bail on this and lose all their athletes or lose the support of their family or lose the support of you know the parents of those t- athletes because they want them to be on telly and they want to do it. So it's, yes, you can pull out, but there'll be a lot of external pressure from other people to stop them doing so. In the end, as we mentioned, a whole lot of coverage and scrutiny of this over the past month or so, including from yourself. Do you think that um, the sort of criticism or the, or the warnings about the possible downsides of this project in the media might have an impact? I mean, even um, Martin Devlin on the radio threatening to disrupt the broadcast. I've, I've never heard yes, a, a sportscaster actually threaten to disrupt um, <laughs> the, the broadcast of, of stuff on, on Sky TV. Do, do you think all this will actually have an impact on, on the project? It might have to be rethought based on the sorts of things we've heard about it over the past month? I don't think it will. I think NZOC are doing their best to distance themselves as much as possible. Um, Sport New Zealand, Peter Miskimmon, the outgoing CEO, has done his best to sort of distance themselves from it as much as they possibly can. And government sort of agencies are trying their best to stay out of it because it's incredibly murky. And Joe, something else we took a look at in the program today was uh, the media response to, I guess, the disappointing news that last week that um, the Four Nation Rugby Championship uh, will not be here, it'll be in Australia. This has been painted as something that is the government dropping the ball, you know, pun intended, um, (laughs) and that this is costing millions of dollars, uh, something that definitely should have been here, would have been here if the government hadn't um, made a mess of it. Is that an accurate picture in your mind? At the most basic of levels, yes. The quarantine rules were essentially what got the rugby championship to Australia and what helped Australia get that bit over the line, if you can call it a bit. But no, the rugby championship isn't even guaranteed to go ahead at this point. South Africa and Argentina have been invited to join a four-nation tournament in Australia, which will be held in November and December, in Sydney, largely based in New South Wales. However, South Africa yesterday... In an email announcing their domestic competition and its restructure due to COVID-19, saying that they weren't sure if the Springboks were going to play any international rugby this year. They're certainly not prepared because they haven't had any international any rugby at all under their belt, so they'd need a, a fair bit of time to prepare. They've got COVID issues going on in their own country, and they are not yet guaranteed to come here. In fact, it's looking increasingly unlikely South Africa are going to make it over for the rugby championship. Highly unlikely that they'll even get here in the end. Argentina, they've had, what, 14 or so players test positive, including their head coach. Some of them now are negative, but they've had to break 14. up. They've had, to, they had six at one 
one point and then eight at another. And oh, then six I knew about the six. I didn't know about the other eight. So six, in, six initially, and then they broke the bubble, of course, because they were in a training bubble. And then uh, eight others tested positive, including their coach. So they never had to break the bubble again. South Africa and Argentina's um, ability to come to this rugby championship still hasn't been signed off by the federal Australian government or the state governments. Mm. So there's a massive question mark over whether or not this rugby championship will even happen. And it could quite possibly be that the All Blacks play two Bledisloe Cup tests against the Wallabies in Wellington and Auckland and then head to Australia for two return tests in Sydney, and that's that. RNZ sports reporter Joe Porter. This week, the broadcasting watchdog upheld a complaint that comments made by News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking back in April about COVID-19 death rates in Italy were misleading. The Broadcasting Standards Authority went further by saying that the case highlighted the importance of data literacy in the media, so not just a run-of-the-mill breach of standards for accuracy. But what was the problem here? Well, in one of his daily editorials, posted online as Mike's Minute, ZB's main man in the morning claimed almost everyone in Italy said to have died of COVID-19 had in fact died with the virus, but not of it. The alarm you're seeing offshore in places like Italy is false coverage to the extent that many of the people would have died anyway. They were dying anyway. It's a hard thing to say, but it's also true. It is a fact. And no one was reporting this. Mike Hosking complained on the 6th of April. Now there, he was echoing the words and thoughts of Auckland University epidemiologist Dr Simon Thornley, a member of the Plan B group, which believes COVID-19 is not as deadly as the government and experts it consults thinks it is, and that the containment measures the government's employed are doing more harm than good. We face debt for generations and an economy in recession for what turned out to be potentially not a single death that would not have occurred anyway. Hospitalisation that barely dented the sides, but a reaction, as one epidemiologist put it last week, that was a hammer to crush a flea. And Dr Thornley had written those words in an opinion piece for Stuff on the 31st of March, in which he also said that deaths have been wrongly attributed to COVID-19 in Italy. And he told Mike Hosking that himself on News Talk ZB the following morning. Overall deaths are not occurring at a rate that is unexpected for that population. So it suggests that it's not an added burden on that population. And Mike Hosking found that pretty persuasive, judging by that Mike's Minute back on the 6th of April. It is a fact. Places like Spain, for example, have a death rate of 9.2 per thousand. Italy, it's over 10 per thousand. And in other words, in Spain, well in excess of 400,000 people die per year, over 1,100 people a day. If we ring those deaths up on scoreboards the way we are with this virus, we'd be alarmed. Even if it was true that seasonal or annual death rates were similar in Spain or Italy, people there don't usually die all at once, as was happening during the pandemic, which was just getting started. But in response to a listener's complaint about the way Mike Hosking used statistics, the BSA this week found Mr Hosking had conflated COVID-19 figures with the figure of 1,600 deaths per day in Italy and ignored the possibility that Italians may have died a lot sooner than they might otherwise have done. And having looked into where Mike Hosking got his online information, the BSA said that NZME, his employer, did not make reasonable efforts to ensure the programme was accurate and back up what it called Mike Hosking's relatively strong views critiquing the government's measures to manage the impact of COVID-19. But NZME, rather than conceding that this was the case, contested the complaint, pointing out that it's well known to listeners that Mike's Minute is based on his own opinions and analysis. And that's true. Mike Hosking does at least two strident editorials every day he's on the air, and he has a free hand to do that at News Talk ZB. 
But the BSA said that audiences rely heavily on mainstream media to provide authoritative, reliable information on matters of public importance. And upholding this accuracy complaint, they said, does not unreasonably prevent Mike Hosking from expressing his views. In fact, said the BSA... It reasonably requires Mr Hosking to express his views in a way that does not propagate a selective or misleading interpretation of the factual sources relied on or omit important contextual information that may alter listeners' understanding of the views presented on a topic of high public interest. And it's another way of saying Mike Hosking does have carte blanche to spout stats on life-and-death stuff, but the broadcaster had better at least try to make sure he's not misleading the listeners when he does that. And it's not the only time Mike Hosking has blurted out misleading numbers from overseas. In fact, it wasn't the only time that fortnight. Mike Hosking told his listeners this on the 16th of April. And so what they found out is that among the, um, the countries... Uh, among Iceland, among the people rather, about half the population, because they just went out and got 10%. They just grabbed the 10%. They didn't look at anybody who may or not be ill. They just grabbed 10%. And what they found is half the population at any given time has the virus but doesn't know it. And Mike Hosking said that stunning stat could have big implications for us. Half, 50%. So if that's applicable to any other country because no one else tests just random groups of people. You've got to show some sort of symptom or sign. If that's applicable, then we're wasting our time. Then a lockdown has been a complete and utter waste of time. But it was nowhere near true that half of Icelanders were unwitting carriers of COVID-19. Half of those who tested positive for COVID-19 and other respiratory illnesses were asymptomatic and unaware of it, but they accounted for less than 1% of people who were tested in the biggest testing drive in Iceland, and possibly as little as 0.3% in the other main testing drive there. So Mike Hosking was out by a factor of at least 100 in saying that half of them had COVID-19. Another accuracy complaint was upheld against Mike Hosking in 2017, after which he made a Mike's Minute mocking the Broadcasting Standards Authority as a bunch of humorless people who sit around pontificating. What changes? What's the point? The only clarification needed is why we have a BSA that busies itself with such nonsense. Now, this is a free country with a free media, so does this matter? Well, not to Mike Hosking, evidently, but it ought to matter to his employer, NZME. Just two weeks before Mike Hosking's misleading comments about Italy, the chief executive of NZME, Michael Boggs, published an earnest letter to all New Zealanders. Our commitment to all New Zealanders is that we will maintain the highest journalistic standards as we stay focused on giving Kiwis the news and information they need when they need it. And Mr Boggs added that in a time of crisis... We take all of these roles and responsibilities incredibly seriously and are totally committed to keeping New Zealand informed and connected. And it's hard to reconcile that with NZME's willingness to defend a broadcast on its most popular news and information platforms, which was deemed a breach of the standards for accuracy, and from a broadcaster who uses the company's own platforms to thumb his nose at the regulator that's charged with ensuring the nation's airwaves are used responsibly. And finally on Media Watch this weekend... Judith Collins as you've never seen her before, tattooed on the top of Nick Gibbons' thigh. I want her to get out there with her political gun 
and, and stick it to them. Morinsville man Nick Given and his right thigh had their 15 minutes of fame this week when the media seized on his homage to Crusher Collins in ink. That tat was described by him and then the media as a Bond girl depiction of the National Party leader, which was a bit weird as it appeared to be modelled on a pretty well-known image of Judith Collins herself, pointing a pistol at a target at a shooting range during a photo opportunity back when she was the Minister of Police. Now that became part of the iconography of Judith Collins as a hard-nosed politician and to Nick Given it seems he still sees her as crusher galore. I hope Judith just doesn't listen to the haters and just, yeah, let's do it, crush him. But it wasn't just Nick Given who had a crush on Crusher back then. Political reporters also seized on that image because it added to political theatre. But in her report for News Hub last Tuesday, which featured that telegenic tattoo, Tova O'Brien said that the combative Crusher image was nowhere to be seen on the campaign trail. Today's Collins, perhaps not what he had in mind. How are you? She's playing the sweet card. Just milk, thanks, dear. I'm way too sweet. Judith Collins wasn't shaping to shoot anyone or crush anything when she was unveiling a plan to improve kids' teeth called My Smile, mirroring the friendly tone she's now projecting in this election campaign. And News Talk ZB's Kate Hawksby seemed deeply disappointed. Where's Crusher gone? What's happened to Judith Collins now that she's hit the campaign trail? I think back to pre-campaign Judith. Feisty. Sassy slapdowns and witty one-liners. She had an I-don't-care-what-anyone-thinks vibe, which was part of her appeal, quite frankly, not fitting into anyone's preordained box, just being herself, and it's part of why she got the leadership job. I reckon people loved her for it. Well, whether people do love it or not, they didn't get her the leadership. Nationals caucus did because they thought Judith Collins was their best option for this election. And I don't care what anyone thinks is only a strategy for losing an election heavily, so hardly a surprise that she isn't now campaigning as crusher. So that means no toe-to-toe, blow-by-blow political campaign scrap. But what about a contest of ideas? On 9 to Noon's politics slot, Catherine Ryan put that to political pundit Brigitte Morton like this. In many ways, they're too scared to look like or behave like a a genuine opposition because they fear they're going to wear a backlash from that when the country still feels like it's in an emergency. Yeah, I think you can see in Nationals' delivery that it is all about delivery, that it's not necessarily about what the decisions will be. It's about implementing those decisions. That answer again... Yeah, I think you can see in Nationals' delivery that it is all about delivery, that it's not necessarily about what the decisions will be, it's about implementing those decisions. After which, rival panellist from the left, Stephen Mills from Labour's preferred polling firm UMR, sympathised with Judith Collins' party. I just think it is very tough on National. I mean, they definitely got it all wrong under Simon Bridges' leadership by criticising the lockdown, and they seem to have kind of uh, registered that and taking a different approach under... um, under uh, Judith Collins, but, you know, what is the difference between what they would do? That's really hard to tell now. Again, not the stuff of election campaign coverage to stir the blood, or even the brain. And in the absence of that, a man in Morrinsville with a challenger inked on himself was a godsend, according to Stuff's Henry Cook. This kind of light news is exactly the kind of thing that politicians want in campaigns. A chance to be on the telly talking about something other than policy or politics. A remarkable situation, if true, a month out from an election with the leadership of the country at the crossroads during the biggest crisis we've ever known. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this week, but the Media Watch team will be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show. And then we'll be back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.